starting from chapter 9, verse 30 in Romans. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it by a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does, not, who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare it with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and wretchedly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Chapter 11 starting at verse 22. Starting from verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, If you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may may not be conceited. 
Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Uh, Well, it'll help enormously to have uh, that passage open. Um, We're tackling chapters 11 through to, sorry, 9 through to 11 tonight, and so we'll flick around between those three chapters. Uh, Many years ago, St. Matthew's uh, here at church uh, ran a prayer group for a very specific subgroup of people. It was for parents, uh, parents of adult children who had left church and weren't following Jesus. They'd meet a couple of times each year to share updates and to pray for children who had grown up in church but, for one reason or another, weren't interested in Jesus any longer. As you can imagine, uh, these were meetings uh, full of tears and uh, full of sorrow uh, for their kids, kids who'd turned away from God. Uh, If you're a Christian here tonight, I'm sure you have people um, like this in your life uh, that you know of, people you love who have walked away from Jesus. Part of the anguish, I think, is that it's so hard to understand what God's doing. Uh, Why would God save me and not them? What is God doing? And that's the question that comes up in this next section of Romans. Sort of. That's our question, but it's not quite Paul's question. Uh, Paul's question here is even more confronting. His question is not just generic, why hasn't this person been saved? But Paul's question is, why hasn't Israel been saved? Uh, You get a sense of Paul's emotion as he addresses the topic, as he starts out there in chapter 9, uh, verse 2. Turn with me. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, Israel as a nation haven't turned to Jesus. And so Paul is anguished like our anguished parents. But it was kind of worse because Israel were the ones who were were meant to follow the Messiah. They had everything. They had the law, the promises, the temple, all of this stuff. They were the sons, right? But now they hadn't accepted the Messiah. And actually, this is a huge problem. 
Uh, it puts a big question mark over God's faithfulness, over his justice, whether he's able to do the things that he's said he'd do. It's one thing if you don't invite someone to your party, but it's a whole different thing if you don't invite them to your party, but you promised them that you would. And that's what's going on. What is going on with God's promises to Israel? And so Romans 9 to 11 uh, deals with that question by taking this, this wide-angle lens on the, the saving work of God and takes in the whole sweep of it. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, so tonight we're going to see uh, three things. We're going to see that God's saving plan works by his choosing, uh, by a message, and by envy. By his choosing, by message, and by envy. So firstly, and those three things kind of roughly line up with the chapters, 9, 10, 11. Uh, So firstly, let's dig into it. By his choosing. Uh, You can see Paul addressing the problem there in verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed. That's the accusation, that God's word must have failed if if Israel haven't uh, been saved. But Paul points out that actually it's always been like this. God has always chosen some to belong to him. And so there, as he starts out chapter 9, he uses these examples from the Old Testament. Uh, The example of Isaac and Ishmael. Both were Abraham's children, but only Isaac was the child of the promise. Or Isaac's children. God chooses Jacob and not Esau. See, God has always been in the business of choosing some and not others. But how is that fair? That's the question there in verse 14. Paul's asking our questions for us. Uh, He says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? And here's the answer. Not at all, he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, The answer to this question of whether God's fair is that mercy by its nature has no obligation. See, God is totally at liberty to be merciful or not. That's what mercy is. It's freely given. And the thing is, if everyone under God is guilty, then the thing we should expect is for everyone to face God's anger. And the fact that anyone is saved is purely down to God's mercy, which is freely given. Uh, The key verse uh, is there in verse 16. He goes on to say, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Salvation doesn't therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. See, if God played favourites, that would be unfair. If it was based on uh, who was smartest or who was prettiest or if you know, it had to be from the right background, the right family, the right school, that would be unfair. But that's not how it works. God chooses out of his mercy alone. Now, if you're following this so far, your brain is probably already asking the question that's there in verse 19. Uh, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? 
See, Paul is asking uh, these questions that we have jump into our mind. If God chooses some and not others, then how can we be held responsible? And that's a great question. But Paul doesn't actually answer that question. We might want to know how it all fits together, God's will and our decisions and human responsibility and God's sovereignty. How does this all work? And that's okay. We can, we can ask those questions. But we don't get to weaponize that question. See, it's possible to ask that question as an attack on God. To say, you don't know what you're, know what you're doing, God. And Paul says, hang on. The following verses, after verse 19, he says, hang on. That's like a clay jar talking back to the potter. The thing that is formed, talking back to the one who formed it and, and saying, how, how come you made me like this? Why did you make me with two handles instead of one? And Why this shape? No. The jar doesn't get to talk back to God. We don't get to talk back to God. We receive the reality that God has given to us. And we don't get to understand necessarily how it all fits together. But God does want us to see the purpose. He doesn't just leave us in the dark. He does want us to see the purpose. So have a look there in verse 22. What he wants us to see is that it's there to show his mercy. See, let's read from verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? See, God works this way so we can know what he's like, so we can see his anger at sin, and so we can see his glory in the mercy that he shows to some. And we can only see that because he chooses some and not others. God's saving plan works by his choosing and also by a message. Also by a message uh, pivoting into ch- uh, chapter 10. You see what's happened here is that Israel have missed out on God's righteousness but not because it was hard to find They missed out because they didn't want it that way. They didn't want it from that guy on the cross. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They missed it because they didn't like the look of Jesus. They wanted to do it themselves. Uh, One of my friend's kids, uh, she's a toddler, and um, if you know any toddlers, toddlers are fiercely independent when they want to do something they do not want your help with that thing uh, whenever she gets in a mood uh, she she says this she says no I will do it by my elf <laughs> uh, which I just love I think it's uh, you know the perfect expression not just for kids all of us we all have this kind of this feeling I'll do it by my elf uh, you know who here uh, has ever refused help out of sheer stubbornness. Couldn't be me. Couldn't, could not. We, we don't want to admit that we need help. Like a drowning swimmer who pushes away the lifeguard. 
And that's how Israel felt about their status with God. They didn't want it as a gift. Instead, there in uh, chapter 10, verse 3, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Trusting in the law, trusting in their own religious zeal. They wanted to do it by my elf. And we want that too. We take the same attitude. We want to feel like I did this. I have this status with God and it was hard and other people couldn't make it, but I made it. But God's saving plan works by a message. And that's important because it is radically accessible to all. That's the point that chapter 10 is making. That's what Paul means with those strange verses uh, there in 10, verse 6 and 7. Uh, these verses about ascending up into heaven to bring Christ down, right? See, the gospel is accessible. It isn't up in heaven or down in the deep as if you need some mystical experience to, to get hold of it. No. Right now, Jesus is completely accessible. The word is near you, verse 8. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. And that's just so amazing because it's unlike anything that the world has to offer. Buddhism would have you follow the eightfold path to reach enlightenment. Islam would have you uh, make pilgrimage to Mecca. And our modern world would would want you to to find your true self and and to express your authentic self, which is a lot harder than it looks. And all of it is hard work. You need to reach this level. You need to do this thing. And that's part of the attraction because it feels like you're achieving something, that you're making a mark, that you're doing something to be proud of. But the gospel is accessible in a message. And all you need to do is there in verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, right at this moment, uh, salvation is as far away from you as your own mouth and your own heart. And you don't need any special achievements. Uh, You don't need to get HDs. You don't need to put points on the board here at church somehow. No. You just trust that message. Trust what Jesus has done and not what you've done. So what have we seen so far? God's saving plan works by his choosing and by a message. But before we move off this one, uh, there is one big application here that we must not miss. Now you see it there in verse 14. Uh, Paul launches into this series of logical connections. He says, how then can they call on one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? See, if God's saving plan works by a message then people need to hear that message. And so someone's going to have to go and tell them. And can I say, that is great news for your friends at uni. That is great news for your mates at work. Because you know the message. You know the gospel. 
And so they've got a fighting chance of hearing about Jesus. But there are millions in our world who don't have that same fighting chance. And so if we're going to take this passage seriously, we do need to see that we need to send people. People need to be sent with this message. People who will take the gospel to unreached places. And according to Romans, that is a beautiful thing to do. Uh, verse 15 goes on, How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's a really lovely image. I think one that really kind of stays with me because mostly because I imagine that the feet of messengers in the ancient world were gross. I just, you know, they, they're obviously walking along dusty roads and they get to their destination, stinky, gross feet. But when they bring this message of God's mercy in Jesus, then they are the most glorious, beautiful feet you can imagine. Okay, what have we seen so far? God's saving plan works by his choosing and by a message. And finally, we see that it's by envy. Now, that one feels like the odd one out, doesn't it? Uh, What's going on here? Uh, Well, even when we reach chapter 11, we're still left with this huge question. What's going to happen to Israel? Does God have a plan for them? Uh, You see there in chapter 11, verse 11, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is is all hope lost for them? And again there's the answer, not at all. God does have a plan for them. He's carried out his saving plan on a global scale like this for a reason. And it has to do with envy. Have a look, verse 11 goes on. Salvation has come to the Gentiles... To make Israel envious. We'll glance down uh, verse 13. He says, Paul says at the end of that verse, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Uh, Paul's hope is that there'll come a moment where the Jewish people will look around and think to themselves, hang on a second, what's up with this? All these Gentiles out here worshipping our God. You know, they're singing our psalms. They're they're teaching Psalm 23 to their kids. They're calling on Messiah. How do they even know that word? That's our word. They're writing books about Yahweh. How come this uni church gang can have a Passover meal and that makes sense for them? What is going on? And they'll be aroused to envy. They'll be like, hey, we want our stuff back. We want to join you in worshipping God through the Messiah, Jesus. I think that's what uh, those uh, tricky verses in verses uh, chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 are talking about. Uh, when Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. That that's going to be the mechanism. This envy will be the mechanism for which, uh, which will bring about Israel being saved. I think that... Uh, Paul is speaking prophetically at this point. He's saying there will come a time when ethnically Jewish people will turn back to Jesus as their Messiah because they're provoked by seeing Gentiles worshipping their God. So even though it sounds strange, God's saving plan works 
by envy. Uh, But there's one big application here as well that we must not miss. Uh, Paul gives it to us through a gardening analogy. Uh, Paul's uh, talking at this point to the Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is just anyone who is not a Jew. So, unless you're Jewish, that's everyone else here. I am a Gentile. And so Paul says this direct word to us. He says, if some of the branches have been broken off, that is, the branches of the the tree that makes up God's people, if some of those branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. See, it's tempting uh, to think that we own this God thing, right? That it belongs to us. I'm a Christian, come from a Christian family. You know, we're Anglicans, we've got this old building. Uh, It belongs to us. Uh, My granddad sat in this uh, very room on the night that World War II started. Uh, They announced it in the middle of church. And so we think to ourselves, man, you know, we're we're so established. This has always been ours. But Paul says, do not be arrogant, but tremble. Remember that we are the outsiders here. We're the refugees who've been welcomed in. We are wild branches that have been grafted into the people of God. We're the new kids on the scene. And so we must be humble. We must not think we're superior to anyone else. We must not treat with contempt those who are outside. If we can be brought in, then anyone can. Jewish people can turn back to Jesus. We should pray actively for Jewish people to come back to know Jesus as their Messiah. The people that you're praying for who don't know the Lord, they can be grafted in too. We don't have any special quality that makes us different. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. God's saving plan works by his choosing, by a message and by envy. But to finish, I want us to zoom out a little bit and ask why. Why has God done it this way? Uh, Why does God choose like this? Why does God use a message? Uh, Why this whole process, right, where he brings the gospel to the Jews and they reject it, um, but so it goes to the Gentiles and they accept it and then the Jews get envious and why is God operating like this? Uh, Well, God's saving plan works like this. So we would all stand on equal footing. So that we would all equally depend on God's mercy alone. God's saving plan works like this. So we would all stand on equal footing. Equally dependent on God's mercy alone. Uh, You see it there in chapter 11 verse 32. He says this, For God has bound everyone, everyone, 
over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. You see, how do you get equality between people? Well, these chapters tell us you have to strip everyone back to nothing. Gentiles are saved out of their disobedience by God's mercy alone. And the Israelites have to go through the same process, being given over to disobedience so that God might have mercy on them in the same way. And notice as well how the message that God uses is open to all. Now look back at chapter 10. Look how universal it is. Verse 11. Paul says, as scripture says, anyone, literally all, who believe in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Over and over again in those verses, all, all people can access this salvation because it is within reach of all. And so there is no difference between Jew or Gentile, Australian or Afghani. And so I hope you can start to see how this should shape us as a people. We must be humble. There's no place for superiority, for looking down on others. We must be humble. And we must be open. There is no place for racism, for excluding people because of their background, because of their nationality. Here in the gospel is the real basis for equality, equality before God. Because he works out his saving plan in a way that puts us all on equal footing. He chooses He uses a message that is available to all. And he is the one who makes us equally dependent on his mercy. Paul starts uh, this section from uh, Romans 9 to 11. He starts the section in anguish. But he finishes in worship there in chapter 11, verse 33. Uh, Turning to God, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He spends these three chapters examining the saving work of God and he goes from anguish to adoration. Because when he looks and sees the saving work of God, He sees the incredible way in which God shows mercy to us all on the same standing.